Welcome to Inside the Rope, a podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Tim Carl, the founder and portfolio manager for OzCap. OzCap is a fund manager that up until now has run an Australian long short fund that we did a podcast episode on earlier. You might want to go back and listen to that. Uh, but today, Tim is mainly talking about a new global equities fund. I think they're trying to leverage off the track record they've established and the strong investment track record of 16.5% per annum in the Australian fund, and then applying their same methodology, thinking and expertise to the global stage. In this episode, Tim addresses their thinking around why they've established the fund and also gives some good stories and insight into some of the companies they're invested into. I encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. As a reminder, this is a podcast that is designed to be for information purposes, not a direct recommendation of any uh, investment fund, and we encourage people to seek advice prior to making any investment. Please keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I really appreciate that feedback and we look to take that on board. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Enjoy it. Tim, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Good to be here. Fantastic to have you back. Uh, Tim, for the benefit of our listeners, can we perhaps kick off and just give maybe a update or a refresher for the listeners, if you'd like, as to yourself, OzCap, the background? Sure. That'd be helpful. Yeah, OzCap's been around uh, since 2012 now, so we're in entering our eighth year for uh, our OzCap Long Short Australian Equities Fund. Uh, we are a boutique investment manager. Uh, we currently have two products. The one that we started with, which is an Australian Long Short Equities Fund, and uh, we're very excited about uh, our recent launch. Uh, from the 1st of November, we kicked off a, uh, a global equities fund. Uh, we are a value and quality manager, uh, so uh, we like buying what we would consider to be good to great companies at attractive valuations. Uh, and uh, both domestically and globally, we're, we're pretty excited by the opportunity set at the moment. We're certainly finding uh, plenty of things to invest in. Uh, the business now has an investment team of six. It started out uh, as an investment team of two, Matthew Parker and myself. We were both ex-Goldman's, where we looked after uh, proprietary capital at, uh, at Goldman Sachs uh, here in Sydney. And uh, we've we've been expanding that over the course of the journey. So uh, part of that was to facilitate the uh, the launch that we announced recently. Now we've had a podcast in the past on the Australian long short strategy. Yes. So I won't spend a lot of time on that, and listeners can go back and listen listen to that. However, I think it would be good just to touch on the recent performance of the fund and the journey since we did that last podcast, as well as just a brief insight as to your current positioning and your outlook for that fund. Sure. Uh, so the fund's had a, uh, a very successful track record since we launched, so it's done about 16.5% uh, per annum uh, net of all fees to investors since inception. And I think in that in that time period, the, uh, the index has done uh, about 10.5%, including dividends. Uh, the calendar year to date actually looks very similar to that. So this year, uh, in calendar year 19, I think the fund's done about 16.5%, uh, albeit coming off a more challenging year uh, for us and a lot of value funds in, in 2018. 
uh, where we're positioned at the moment is we're quite uh, excited by our portfolio. We're quite optimistic about the domestic outlook. Uh, there does seem to be a, uh, an overwhelming sense of bearishness amongst investors, and we would probably uh, take or have a different view uh, on the outlook for the domestic economy. Uh, because when we line up uh, you know, the positives and negatives uh, uh, that, that you would see from an objective analysis, we certainly see a lot more in the former column than the latter column. And so if we run through a few of those things, uh, Australia continues to experience very strong population growth. And population growth really does have a, a large part to play in, uh, in generating economic growth over time. Uh, despite strong net migration and strong natural population growth, uh, we're still seeing very, very strong employment. Uh, so the employment, unemployment rate's hovering around 5%. And that's despite the fact that uh, job vacancies uh, are elevated and, and probably more importantly, the participation rate is uh, at close to record highs, um, if not at record highs. Uh, we're, we're here in an environment where monetary policy is extraordinarily accommodative. So businesses have really no excuse not to invest in the future. Uh, we've seen a stabilisation and now rapid increase in house prices. So any sapping of consumer confidence that you saw a year ago should be abating and we expect will continue to abate over the next six to 12 months. Uh, and importantly, the federal government's back in the black. So we're seeing budget surpluses and that means we can expect more tax cuts, more fiscal stimulus, uh, because if a government has more, more money to play with, then you can afford these sorts of things. And then there, were, then there are external factors that are also quite supportive. So we sit here today having just gone through a financial year with a record terms of trade surplus. The terms of trade surplus last year was about 50 billion. That's very unusual for Australia. Normally we run a terms of trade deficit. So for us to be in that position, it's half the reason that the Australian federal government's back in the black. Um, and it's allowing us to do various things. We've got a massive infrastructure pipeline. Uh, there's going to be more than 300 billion spent over the next decade in infrastructure. It won't be smooth, it won't be an even journey, but uh, you can be uh, guaranteed that a lot of those projects will get built and will uh, aid the domestic economy. Uh, commodity prices remain high, which is obviously very, very supportive of growth and volumes are actually at record levels across our three major exports, which are iron ore, LNG and coal. Uh, and yet, despite that, we've got a low Aussie dollar, which in and of itself is supportive. And so you've got all of these positives on the one side. And then on the other side, we have a slowdown in residential construction, which is likely to really hit in 2020, but needs to be looked at in context and from a numerical perspective, looks like it will be managed reasonably well by the domestic economy. Uh, and it should be shortened by the tick up in house prices that we've seen recently. So we don't expect a prolonged downturn because builders require rising house prices to construct. It's the reason that house prices, house approvals um, fell away in the first place. They've recovered strongly and we expect to see a bounce in the next six months in building approvals. And obviously the drought is having a negative effect uh, on the economy. Um, and uh, you know we, we all hope that that, uh, uh, that that situation improves at some point. But, but on balance, it's, uh, it's very difficult for us to not be positively disposed to the, uh, the domestic economy. And 
Yet despite that, we're finding a very large number of stocks trading well below their long-term averages on what we would argue are potentially depressed earnings. So whether it's uh, the retail stocks, whether it's the media stocks, whether it's some of the building and construction stocks, and to be honest, even the domestic banks, we're starting to see improving conditions uh, uh, that are facing a lot of those sectors and yet valuations that are very attractive. So about half of the OSCAP domestic funds portfolio is exposed uh, to the domestic economy and we are very excited about that exposure. And then on the other side of that, there's, there's quite a number of unique uh, investment opportunities uh, uh, that are individual in nature but look extraordinarily compelling to us. Uh, we've written a, an entire newsletter, I think back in September, on mineral resources, which is one of our uh, one of the fund's larger positions. Uh, we own Unibail Radamco Westfield, uh, one of the largest owners of shopping centres globally. So this At, is now on the international side? No, no, this no. is within the domestic okay. fund. So Unibail Radamco Westfield is, is dual listed, uh, so it does have a listing in Australia. Uh, and it's trading at a 35% odd discount to its net tangible asset. We were buying that only two months ago at a 10% yield. Uh, extraordinary if you uh, think about the fact that these are some of the best shopping centre assets in the world. And there's obviously a myriad of fears out there in relation to the trend in retail towards online. Uh, so they're not going to get amazon But the, the likelihood of them getting amazon is very, very low. Uh, if you... Uh, the fear has really been around the fact that as the retail footprint for some of these larger players decreases, that uh, occupancy will fall dramatically uh, across all the shopping centres. Uh, we think it's a, a, a little bit different from that. We think that some of the regional shopping centres will start to struggle, uh, but some of the, um, the, 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 the premier shopping centres will continue to have very, very high occupancy and exhibit very, very strong like-for-like -like growth. And you're already seeing that in the last three halves, Unibail, Redanco, Westfield has actually beaten the top end of their own guidance and reported both strong occupancy and strong like-for-like -like sales growth. And you know, as, as they commented recently, even if you're of the opinion that the Zaras of the world are going to shrink their store network by somewhere between one-third and two-thirds, uh, the, the, the number one and number two and number three and number four destinations that they still need to be are in these flagship centres that, um, that companies like URW uh, own and operate. So from that perspective, uh, we think that there's a bit of a bifurcation in the market and you need to distinguish the tier one players from the rest. And, uh, and in that context, we think we're getting extraordinary value to buy a business like that with a 10% yield when it's raising money in the bond market with an all-in coupon of one and a half percent. Either the bond market's wrong or the equity market's wrong, maybe it's a combination of both, but we're very excited about the pricing uh, that's, uh, that's been attached to, um, to companies like Unibail, Redarmco, Westfield. So Timmy, the Australian fund looks very well positioned and mm. you're very confident with it. Why, why open an international equities fund or a global equities fund? What, what's the thinking behind that? Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, for for years, uh, uh, Matt and I, the two principals of OSCAP, have invested in international equities, uh, primarily just through the business in a personal capacity. And 
we have had for some time the objective of opening an international equivalent, a global equivalent to the domestic fund. Uh, as much to get offshore exposure for ourselves as, as anything. Uh, and we, we saw an opportunity in the domestic market to have a value and quality uh, uh, manager uh, fill uh, what we think is a little bit of a void. Um, obviously, there have been some very, very successful uh, growth-based managers. There have been some very successful uh, uh, style agnostic managers. Uh, we think that there's a space for a true-to-label value and quality manager, and that's what we'd like to be. So, And Tim, uh, when you say value manager, how far are you willing to push that in terms of if it's growing rapidly, how far are you willing to expand your valuation metrics to, to make that work for you? Yeah, it's it, as any value manager would say, it's a struggle uh, uh, the higher the PE becomes for us to justify uh, uh, paying those sorts of prices, even for the very best businesses. And uh, we would certainly suggest that historically, uh, we have maybe missed out on some opportunities by a lack of willingness to pay up for the very best businesses. So it's certainly something that... So on the flip side, would you be willing to invest in something like an Amazon, mm. which has grown top-line revenue phenomenally, but underlying earnings or earnings back to shareholders have been very, very low. They've reinvested in the business. Can you get yourself to something like that inside this fund, do you think? We struggle with Amazon. Um, we think the cloud business is a terrific business. Uh, uh, we think that you are making a bit of a leap of faith to assume that uh, not so much their domestic business, but particularly their international business, uh, has an obvious path to profitability because I suspect if they try to press the profitability lever, uh, they do that by making themselves a little bit less competitive on price. Uh, so we, we, we do struggle a little bit with Amazon. Uh, however, we, we do own Google uh, in the domestic, sorry, in the global fund at the moment. Uh, we, uh, we do own Visa. Uh, we do own a bit of Microsoft. Uh, so most of these businesses are trading in on PEs in the low 20s on an ex-cash basis. And uh, we are the first to admit that they are some of the best businesses in the world. So, okay, so low 20s, a traditional or historical value manager would struggle with those sort of numbers. They kind of choke on those. So that sort of displays that you're willing to expand that for the right businesses with the right sort of growth trajectory. What, what is the mandate of the Global Equities Fund that you've just started? Uh, so the mandate, mandate is all international equities. So uh, in fact, it even includes Australia. So if we're looking globally and the best exposure to a particular thematic comes out of Australia, then as much as we don't want there to be a significant double up between funds, we will happily invest in an Australian stock in the Global Fund if we can't find a better alternative um, globally. We will have a developed market bias. Uh, uh, that's not to say that we won't have any exposure to the emerging market. We do and we will. Uh, it's just that uh, uh, from a risk management perspective, you've got to understand that the corporate governance is uh, uh, less, strong, less strong in the emerging markets and as a result, uh, we will position size accordingly. So we, we do expect that we will have an overweight exposure to developed markets if we think about how the portfolio is positioned uh, as we sit here today, uh, we have uh, about 30% exposed to North America, uh, a little bit more than that, 35 to 40% uh, exposed uh, to uh, the UK and Europe, and then the remainder in, uh, in Asia and, uh, and the emerging markets. So we've got a reasonably 
diverse geographic split, uh, which we think is appropriate because there are outstanding businesses trading at what we think are very attractive prices in, uh, in all sorts of different markets. And so we, we don't intend to close ourselves off to any of, any of those opportunities. I will add one small point to, to that, which is that this fund will primarily be large cap focused. So if we think about our exposures at the moment, uh, we, about a third of the portfolio is exposed to mega caps, and we've spoken about a few of those. They, they operate in, uh, in a very unique uh, uh, place. Uh, you have, in some of those industries, a very small number of players that dominate um, very large markets, and we really do think that they are some of the best businesses globally. Another third of the portfolio is in the large cap space. So these are businesses that have a market cap of somewhere between 10 and 100 billion. So they're pretty big businesses. Almost all of the large Aussie businesses fall in that, in that camp. Uh, and then we have a, a slightly less than one third exposure uh, to, to mid-capitalisation companies, uh, somewhere between two and 10 billion. So we're not going to be out there hunting for uh, the next 100 bagger. Uh, we're investing in businesses that most of your listeners will have heard of, uh, and there are quite a few opportunities that look uh, very interesting to us, and, and, and interesting in the context of the fact that we are uh, 10 years into a bull market, uh, and yet we're still finding companies like American Express uh, trading on 13 and a half times, a company that's got a historical return on equity over the last decade in the high 20s, and is still pointing to a minimum double-digit growth for the next three years in, in their core business. Uh, so there is still plenty of value out there, and the reason we're finding so much value is the reason that we, we launched when we did. And Tim, why is the benchmark, the RBA cash rate, not, for instance, a global index like the MSCI or similar? So the Global fund is also a long-short fund in the same way that our domestic fund is a long-short fund. We're actually seeing some interesting opportunities on the short side uh, as we sit here today. Uh, and so in the context of it being an absolute return fund, it makes sense to have an absolute return benchmark. Tim, what size is the fund? Oh, the fund has literally just launched. So uh, at this stage, we are just under 10 mil. Uh, we've, we've been open for one month. Uh, we only finalised the uh, documentation at the end of November. So we've literally just started speaking uh, to our investor base and to prospective investors. Uh, the investment team has seeded the fund with a little more than $5 million. Uh, So strong alignment of interest. Very strong alignment of interest. And uh, we will have the same approach in the global fund that we do in the domestic fund. And that is that uh, uh, the portfolio managers, their only exposure uh, to international equities will be through the global fund. And that's exactly the same as the domestic fund. So in the domestic fund, uh, we are, uh, Matt and I are very large shareholders as the two portfolio managers for the domestic fund. And we don't own any Australian equities outside the fund. And, and probably more importantly, uh, I guess it demonstrates our conviction and how that fund is placed at the moment. Uh, I have personally added to my exposure in that fund three times over the course of this year. And I have not done uh, that as many times uh, in any previous year of the fund's existence. So uh, we are genuinely excited about um, some of the opportunities we're seeing and uh, you know we're looking forward to 2020. What are the return expectations you'd set for people thinking about investing into the global fund? 
Return expectations is an interesting concept. We tend not to focus on uh, the outcome for the fund in general. We focus on finding individual opportunities where we think they represent compelling value and have good risk return characteristics. So at the stock level or at the company level, we're, we're typically looking for what we think are 10 to 15% type return opportunities uh, on a per annum basis uh, for each individual position. And if the fund uh, also did that sort of return on an annualised basis, then we'd be delighted. Uh, obviously, the domestic fund has done a little bit better than that over the seven and a half years it's been operating. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we like to have uh, slightly conservative expectations, particularly at, at the outset of, uh, of a fund launch. And how are you handling currency? Yeah, it's a very good question. So uh, initially, the currency will be fully hedged. We are quite bullish on the outlook for the Australian economy, which also makes us quite bullish the Aussie dollar. Uh, in fact, on a terms of trade basis, the Aussie dollar should be a fair bit higher, we think, than where it sits today. Uh, obviously, countering that is the fact that the RBA cash rate is as low as it is, and it's quite unusual for Australia to have a cash rate quite under the US cash rate. Uh, but we are bullish for the outlook uh, for the Australian dollar, and the last thing we'd want to do is cancel out any gains in the global fund uh, through an appreciation of the Australian dollar. So we uh, currently intend to hedge all of the currency, and unless we have a strong negative view on the Aussie dollar, uh, we will remain largely hedged uh, over the life of the fund. Tim, maybe if we can dive into the weeds and talk about some of the uh, top 10 holdings or some of the holdings within that global fund to give people a little bit of colour around the investment thesis behind um, th that fund and some of the individual positions. Maybe you want to talk about, I don't know, Capri, Alphabet, Santander, or and maybe even Macquarie Infrastructure Corporation, um, what your thinking is there and why you've got those positions within the fund. Sure, why don't we start uh, with the first stock uh, that you asked me about, which uh, was Capri. So Capri own a number of brands that I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with, Michael Kors, uh, Versace, and Jimmy Choo. Uh, the company has historically had a very good return on equity. It's averaged in the high 90s over the last decade or so. Uh, and yet the stock is currently trading on six times, at a little over six times PE. Um, the reason for that is largely to do with the acquisitions of the other two brands that it holds in its stable, uh, uh, being Versace and Jimmy Choo. Uh, and they were recent acquisitions. The company spent a considerable amount on those two acquisitions, despite the fact that both companies had very little, very little way of, of earnings. Uh, the opportunity management saw were to A, increase the profitability of both brands, uh, largely through a corporatization of what were effectively family-run businesses, and B, increased penetration, particularly through North America and in some instances in Asia. And at six times with 94% of the earnings coming from Michael Kors, you're effectively buying Michael Kors on six times with a free option on Versace and Jimmy Choo. They took on a reasonable debt load uh, in the acquisition of both those businesses. They're paying down that debt very quickly, and we're certainly encouraged by management confidence in how that business is performing. And uh, to give you an idea of that, in the last six months, the CEO, John Idle, stepped into the market and bought $30 million worth of stock on market. So these, these aren't options granted or free stock given away. This is purchases on market using after-tax uh, proceeds. 
Uh, Michael Kors, the chief designer for Michael Kors, also bought on market. He bought $7 million worth of stock. And it gives us confidence that what we're seeing is a, an extraordinarily attractive valuation for a very high quality company uh, is, uh, is, is what they're also seeing. In fact, it, one of our favorite global screens is the insider buying screen. And uh, you know, typically you find that people sell stock for lots of reasons, but they only ever buy stock for one reason. And so it tends to be a pretty good indicator uh, of some reasonable value. And across the US luxury space, uh, which has been suffering in aggregate, you have seen quite considerable insider buying over the last six months. So Capri is one of three or four holdings that we have at the moment in that US luxury space. It's interesting, uh, post our acquisition of some of these positions, to have seen the bid for Tiffany's. Uh, it, it appears to us like there are quite a few uh, very experienced investors in the space uh, buying stock or buying companies aggressively at the moment and it gives us some comfort that um, what we're seeing uh, is, uh, is, is, not, uh, is not incorrect. Uh, Tim, in does, does Capri have any exposure, or I think you alluded to it there as a future growth source, but people in the market have talked about LVMH, Louis mm. Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, and the exposure that gives them into the growing Chinese consumer. Does Capri have similar, uh, similar upside to it via any of the, their businesses? It, it does. Its penetration is, is not as good as LVMH, so obviously they've done a pretty extraordinary job. Uh, in that business. Having said that, you only have to wind the clock back three years and, uh, and Capri was trading on a pretty similar multiple. So it really has, its derating over the last couple of years has really been a function of some of these acquisitions and uh, a, few, uh, a few headwinds in the US luxury consumer space uh, that we think uh, will be ultimately temporary in nature and the longer term opportunity for this business is very similar to the long term opportunity facing uh, LVMH. I think the uh, the next company you talked about uh, is, is Alphabet, uh, probably a business that we think uh, uh, is the strongest business globally. Uh, on an ex-cash basis, it's trading on somewhere between 22 and 23 times forward earnings. Uh, its core business is obviously extraordinarily dominant with um, a more than 90% market share in, in most, of its, most of its major markets. And it's got a very, very rapidly growing cloud business. So we expect that um, Alphabet, or as your listeners uh, might uh, know more commonly, Google, will continue uh, to grow quite strongly over the next couple of years. And for a business of that sort of quality, 8.5% return on equity, uh, strong uh, earnings growth forecast for the next three years, uh, we don't think that paying that sort of multiple should preclude us from, from purchasing that sort of business. Uh, I think How about if we round it out with something a little bit different than Macquarie Infrastructure Corporation that you hold on the infrastructure side? Sure, so Macquarie Infrastructure is a unique um, uh, situation. Uh, uh, the stock, from our perspective, is one of the cheapest infrastructure stocks globally. It's listed on the New York Stock Exchange and run by Macquarie Group uh, and uh, we are uh, quite favourably disposed to, to Macquarie Group's management. Um, the same can't necessarily be said for uh, the New York Stock Exchange investors into MIC. Macquarie Infrastructure, just to give you some background, uh, it has three major businesses. So it's got an aviation business where it owns uh, private airports in the US. It owns energy distribution assets in Hawaii. And it owns another business called IMTT, which is largely um, fuel storage. Uh, 
uh, a fair bit of that is in and around New York, but they do have um, operations uh, elsewhere in the country. And there has been a slight problem or a hiccup with that third business uh, about a year and a half ago now. Uh, quite a large chunk of their business was storing what's commonly known as, as bunker fuel. And there have been a few hiccups in that space. The, the world is transitioning to cleaner fuel. And so new regulations kick in, in from the 1st of January 2020. And it's meant that a lot of the traders in that space and, uh, and some of the people that store those heavy fuels have been either exiting the business or running down their inventories. And it meant that utilisation for that fuel storage business dropped from the mid 90s to the low 80s. Uh, and obviously uh, that has a magnified effect on a company like MIC's bottom line. So back at the start of 2018, they had to cut their dividend. Uh, after the dividend cut, the stock dropped precipitously. In fact, over the course of 2017 leading into 2018, the stock more than halved. And uh, that was when we became interested in the stock because on its revised dividend profile, it was yielding north, north of 10%. At the time, Macquarie Group uh, sought and gained approval to go and buy $250 million worth of stock on market, which they did at very, very similar prices to the prices that we see today. Uh, Utilisation has since improved and it's now back to the mid to high 80s. We expect it will continue to improve as they repurpose some of those facilities. Uh, and uh, Macquarie Group has just announced that it expects to be able to maintain that 10% dividend yield uh, over the course of the next five quarters. In the meantime, they are conducting a strategic review. And Macquarie Group now has a north of $500 million exposure to MIC, so we wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of asset realisation potentially out of that strategic review, which could be a catalyst for realising value. In the meantime, we're sitting there picking up an annualised yield of over 10%, uh, which, we're, which we're quite excited about. So Macquarie is one of those examples that you will see occasionally in the fund uh, where perhaps you're not entirely familiar with the individual uh, story, but we think that there is a, uh, a very strong case to be made for it to be included in the fund. And uh, uh, there are a number of uh, similar examples. So as much as we would expect the majority of people to be very familiar with most of our top 10, there will occasionally be one or two names where people go, oh, geez, I haven't heard of that company before. And maybe if you'll let me, I'll touch sure. on, Howden's I'll touch on one, one other company because our, our top 10 will be released uh, uh, each newsletter each month. Uh, and Howden's is one position that does currently feature uh, in it. Uh, it is a very interesting uh, kitchen supplier in the UK. And we're quite bullish on the outlook for the UK domestic economy. Uh, I know you don't like to timestamp your, uh, your podcasts, but we're sitting here today a few days out from Brexit. Uh, and I suspect, uh, irrespective of the outcome, you will see a strengthening in uh, the, the housing uh, market from a housing starts perspective. Over the last decade, the UK has underbuilt uh, by about half a million homes. It's very similar to the situation as it was in Australia in about 2012, where we'd had virtually a whole decade where housing formation, so new households created by population growth, outstripped quite considerably housing completions, i.e. new homes built. Well, that situation is very, very similar to the situation that now faces the UK. And so both um, parties, both major parties, are very supportive of an attempt to try to double the number of housing starts in the UK over the next decade, to double them. 
And so knowing this, we went looking for the best exposures in the, the UK market. And we came up with Howden's. And Howden's reminds us a lot of Reese. So Reese, the bathroom and fitting uh, supplier in Australia, deals mainly with tradies. Um, Howden's deals mainly with tradies. Uh, they both operate out of depot style uh, facilities where they're trying to make it very, very easy for tradesmen to come in, get what they need, and go and uh, install it on site. Well, Howden's do this in kitchens. Uh, they do it very effectively. They have a return on capital, looks very similar to Reese. Um, they have very, very strong relationships with their customers. They don't spend a whole lot of time uh, dealing with mum and dads. They want to deal with the people that are actually installing uh, these kitchen facilities. They're trading on about a 35% discount to Reese's current multiple. And we don't think Reese is particularly expensive. In fact, Reese is in the domestic fund. Um, so it's trading on about 16 times. Uh, it's an net cash position. So X the cash, it's actually on a P of less than 15. And it's, it's exposed to what we think is a very, very strong thematic um, being once we get through the election and, and possibly through Brexit, I think you're going to see a fair bit of activity because both parties, both major parties, recognise that they need to get the economy going again. And so there are a number of exposures in the fund that relate specifically to the housing theme, the infrastructure theme that will play out in the UK, both parties supportive of a, uh, a reasonable stimulus package in the infrastructure space, uh, and potentially a, a very significant pickup in capital expenditure by small and medium enterprises who have literally uh, sat on their hands for the last three and a half years as this has been playing out. So uh, the fund, uh, uh, you know, when we identify interesting opportunities and and really whole sectors within an economy that look extraordinarily attractive from a valuation perspective. And we know that the reason they're there is, is something that's macro related or there's some event that's related that, that's caused that to occur uh, that we think will, will pass over time, then uh, we get very excited. And at that moment, we go looking for the very best companies um, in, uh, in that space. And, and the risk for any value manager when you're looking at beaten up sectors, and there are quite a few around the world at the moment, you know, companies uh, facing uh, the Chinese consumer, European banks, UK domestic um, uh, cyclicals, uh, US luxury goods providers. When, when you go and investigate those sectors, the temptation is always to buy the cheapest company. But we think that's a mistake. You wanna go in and buy the very best company and so we have been scouring some of those sectors for some of the best opportunities. And whether it's, whether it's Howden's in UK construction or whether it's Lloyd's in UK banking, we'll try to find the very best positions. And, you know, uh, I'm deviating slightly, but, but Lloyd's is a very interesting case in point. Here is a business that has a more dominant position in that market than CBA does in the Australian market. It has a return on equity that in the last four years has exceeded the return on equity for any of the Aussie banks. And yet it's trading on eight times. It's trading on eight times. And a lot of the issues facing the UK banks uh, should uh, lessen uh, over the coming years. Uh, and obviously we've seen some of that through uh, the Australian listed Virgin May uh, group. Uh, so there are these sorts of interesting opportunities all over the world 
We know that growth versus value has been a very, very strong thematic for some time. Uh, we've, we got to a point where we thought the valuations are simply too compelling. We need to get this global fund started because personally we want exposure uh, to some of the, the massive opportunities that we think we're seeing and we would be delighted if some of our investor base or anyone new to OZCAP uh, wanted to, uh, to come along for the journey. Uh, rest assured, uh, you will be coming along uh, with us fully co-invested on exactly the same terms. Uh, I have the vast majority of my uh, personal net worth tied up in, uh, in the two funds and the business uh, and so we are, we are absolutely motivated to, uh, to try to achieve the very best outcomes for, for our investors. Tim, thank you very much for that summary in the podcast and well done for sneaking the extra Lloyd's uh, overview <laughs> in there. That was uh, well executed. Uh, it's, look, it's always compelling listening to you and your thoughts and I re we really appreciate that. We get great feedback uh, from listeners to the podcast that we encourage them to send through. So thank you very much. You've given away the time date on this, so I will <laughs> wish you a Merry Christmas and hope you have a good one into the new year and I look forward to catching you then. Thanks, Tim. Thanks very much, David, and uh, all the best over the holiday season to all your listeners. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.